Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm excited to bring you a special mega episode with the three nominees for the 2018 Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction. This is a prize that the ABA Journal and the University of Alabama School of Law established back in 2011, and it's intended to honor a novel published the previous year that best illuminates the role of lawyers in society. I was part of the winnowing committee that chose the three nominees. And today I'm honored to speak with Lisa Scottolini, C.E. Tobesman, and Scott Tarot about their books. If you'd like to be part of determining which of my guests will receive this year's award, you have until June 30th to vote in a public poll on our website at abajournal.com slash polls slash Harper Lee Prize 2018. The public vote counts as one of the five judges who will decide the winner of the Harper Lee Prize. And as a last note to our listeners and subscribers, we're going to be scaling back the schedule of the Modern Law Library to once a month for the summer, but we'll return to our biweekly schedule this fall. I hope you enjoy this episode and add these three books to your summer reading list. And now I'm happy to welcome my very first guest, Lisa Scottolini, author of Exposed. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. And more importantly, I'm so thrilled to be nominated for this award. I've long known about it and wished for it. So this is really just this huge honor. And thank you for having me. And you actually yourself have been involved in the selection of nominees in the past. Is that right? Yes, I have. I've been on a winnowing committee myself. And I I don't envy you because, first of all, if you love legal thrillers or books about law and justice, there are plenty, which is the good news. And the bad news is that you've got to read them all and you can't pick them all. So in a way, it's a great task, but also kind of a scary task. So I've been where you have been. And uh, as I say, I'm just so grateful for lots of reasons, really. I agree. There were a lot of potential candidates. So it's so fun to get to talk to you now. So you have been nominated for your book, Exposed, which is currently, as we're speaking in June of 2018, the most recent book in your series, Rosado and D'Annunzio. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about this series and about Exposed itself? What book number is this in the series? Oh, my goodness. Now, that's an excellent question I will not have the answer to. I started writing this series in 1994. I, uh, was happily called the female John Grisham by Time Magazine. And I I say happily because it was a huge honor to be mentioned by Time Magazine. But on the other hand, I never viewed myself as the girl version of any man. And uh, I had been a female trial lawyer and started writing because I felt like, and also a readaholic. So I read all of these books and said, why are there no, why are women trial lawyers or women lawyers at all not in the lead? Like, why are we still essentially pouring coffee, and it made me a little crazy. So I said, you know what, long story short, you should start writing that. And so I decided to do it with a vengeance, which is kind of how I do everything. And so I had an all-female law firm, which I started writing in 1994. And then what happened in this series, probably 15 books in or maybe 16, I've written, I guess, almost 40 books now, not just only in the series. But by the 16th or so, Mary D'Annunzio, who was the main character I started with and also the star of Exposed, you know, she started her life as um, an insecure trial lawyer. I mean, which honestly I was. I stood in front of juries and I felt my neck would be very itchy. I'd get hives on my neck. That was my tell. Like I was scared. 
And I thought, I am not reading this in books. You should put this in a book because you're not the only one who feels that way, regardless of gender. Sometimes you get nervous in front of when you have to stand up in court. And to make a long story short, this has really been an arc of Mary's development as a lawyer from being a little bit sort of a scared associate to when she made partner about 16 books in, she becomes the partner to someone who's sort of a female super lawyer in Benny Rosado. And then these last, I guess the more, more recent five books, I started it sort of as an alphabetical. They go accused, betrayed, corrupted, damaged, and now exposed. And this summer feared will be out. And it ends up being, she has really come full circle, not only in her professional development, but in her personal life. She married, she's going to have a baby. And I sort of wanted to you know, the whole thing is really, you have to have a realistic character, and that character also happens to be a lawyer. That's how I always conceived it, partly because that's how I live my life. I was a lawyer, and then when my daughter was born and I got divorced, unfortunately, at the same time, I ended up saying, well, who, what, how, what, what are you really about? Who do you identify? What are you? How do you identify yourself? And it, frankly, as much as I love lawyering and love writing about it, the answer wasn't, I'm a lawyer. It was, I'm a mom, and I'm a woman, and I also have a family. And I think it exposed in everything I've written about Rosado and D'Annunzio over these 30 years. You see that these are people with a context. They fight for justice, but it's partly because it's in their heart and their bones, not because they have a law degree. And I had secretly hoped to change the way people think about lawyers. First, that they can be girls, okay? They have ovaries, everybody. Get used to it. And also that maybe we a lawyer different. Maybe we run law firms differently. Maybe we choose our cases differently. And I'll, this is a very long answer. You probably said hello 10 minutes ago, and I went on and on. But to wrap it up, here we come and expose. We're here, Mary Denunzio, who wasn't really sure in what was her niche in law, which I think a lot of lawyers feel and a lot of people feel, finds it finally in special education. And so she is a nurturer. She's also a great defense lawyer, and she's also really a good advocate when she feels the injustice done to a child. And so just about the time she's having a child herself, I wanted all of these things to resonate in this novel, and I hope that they did. That's a very long answer to your very short question. (laughs) Welcome to me. (laughs) Well, at the beginning of this book, it is both her, you know, family family connections and her heart going out to a child that really kicks off the initial action, which is she finds out a family friend, Simon Piensiera, has a daughter, Rachel, who's in the hospital. She needs a bone marrow transplant. And her father, who had health insurance through his job, has suddenly found himself out of that job and believes that it's because um, his daughter's you know, health costs were kicking this up. He goes to Mary. He says, you know, Mary, this is what happened. Is there anything you can do? And she says, absolutely. This is labor and employment. This is ADA. She gets excited. She takes it back to her firm to talk to her partner, Benny Rosado, and then discovers a problem. Can you talk about that problem and how this ethical issue ended up becoming kind of a linchpin for Exposed. Right. And it's really important because, you know, partly Mary is driven by her feeling for this child whom she knows, and partly for this family and for her old friend. She's going to vindicate what happened 
to him. So that's a really strong motivation. And then what happens is she finds out from Benny Rosado in the first chapter, we're not giving anything away, that this guy, her old friend, was actually employed by, well, how can we simplify this? Benny Rosado, the principal of the firm, represents the parent company. And he, the plaintiff, wants to sue a subsidiary of the parent of a house client. That's the hypo for lawyers. But really what happens is it's Benny saying to Mary, you can't take this case. And Mary thinking in her heart, thinking of that child, thinking of the injustice done, her old friend and the child's father, and realizing what's at stake. I can't not take this case. I can't not take this case. And partly I did it because I love the conflict between the not only the characters, but more importantly, you know, you're always trying, for me, I've been writing these books for a long time, and I'm always trying to raise issues of what really is a just result. And, that, and to show, first, that lawyers do that. And secondly, that it isn't a question that is unique to lawyers. And that's what, I think that's why there's so many legal thrillers. You know, you can open a page at any point. Should somebody be pardoned for a crime? That's a question that people have an opinion about, regardless of whether they have a J.D. Durey. You present the reader with a, an ethical question and whether or not you know the Code of Professional Responsibility. First of all, you're trying to, as me, as a former lawyer, I'm trying to enlighten people. I actually want them to know there's a Code of Professional Responsibility. For example, I recognize this is a podcast and people can listen to it whenever. But we'll know that now there's a news story about, gee, what are the ethical obligations and professional responsibilities of an attorney general? Who knows that there is a code that lawyers have to follow? Half the newscasters don't. So when I wrote this, I said, okay, let's educate people because there's this code. Both women lawyers have to follow it. They're good friends. They're partners. But they are on the opposite sides of this equation ethically, although, as we know as lawyers, when you read the code, it doesn't really speak to this specific issue. I couldn't even believe that that was true. And I actually contacted the head of the um, – I think they called the Ethical Bureau at Yale Law School, a lawyer I knew there. And I said, can this really be true that there is not an answer to this question? He said, not only can it be true, there is no answer to the question, and it's such a good question that I will make it my semester exam for my ethics class. And he did, and I end up speaking to his ethics class. I would have given them all an A. But so this, how you come out on this with Benny saying, you may not take this case, and then Mary saying, I have to take this case. And so the conflict between the two women, Benny being a little more powerful and a little didactic and a little less connected to people. And in contrast, not that they're strictly opposites because I hate that, but really more that Mary is very much of South Philadelphia, which is a really tight-knit Italian neighborhood. And she's really tight with her family. And her family knows the family of this old friend. And the whole entire neighborhood expects Mary to take this case. And she just can't not. So... Once you set that conflict in motion, and I don't write with an outline, so I actually was like, oh, my God, how am I going to resolve this? I mean, what's going to happen next? And amazingly enough, after 40 books, I've learned that there is a God, and he or she looks out for authors like me who don't have outline. And so I just kind of make my way through it as these characters make their way to each other and try to resolve this very um, important ethical concern. And just speaking as an editor for the ABA Journal, which, if any of my listeners don't know, is the monthly magazine of the American Bar Association, when we got to that section and saw that the ABA rules of professional conduct and the model rules were mentioned in a book, 
We were like, oh, they're talking about how the sausage is made and it's in an interesting way. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that makes me so happy to hear because I do do the research. And I thought, you know what? Part of me said, I never dumbed down the books. And I, I said, you know, you could make this a little less legalistic. And then I said, no, because honestly, that's part of my goal. And I think readers get it. And it's enlightening. I mean, the email was, wow, we didn't know this. And some people, because you have an internet, they can go look it up. They look it up on your site. You know, it's just wonderful, really. I'm I'm glad that you uh, felt that way. Mm -hmm. And for any of our listeners who aren't lawyers or who, who don't quite know how rules of ethics are, are made, the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Ethics develops model rules where, you know, they talk about these things, they hash them out, they say, what is the best ethical decision to make? How can we make a rule that people can attempt to apply to things? And then they have the model rules, and then states and municipalities, everyone can take a look at them and decide how to craft their own. So that's that's kind of the, the background for anyone who just needs a, a quick rundown on that. So when you have been with characters, like you said, the first time Mary Denunzio appeared, you know, under your pen, it was 1994. So you must have some very dedicated readers who have been with you almost from the beginning. Is it difficult to keep these characters going and moving forward in their lives and experiencing milestones and still keeping those same readers on board? Do they ever write to you and say, uh, Benny would never do that. Or this is out of character for Mary. You know, how do you deal with such a long-running series and such a devoted fan base who really has come to feel like they know these characters? No, that's a really interesting question. And I, I feel very lucky. I mean, honestly, every day of my life, I'm just so happy that I have these readers. And it's been a build over time. I mean, it's, you know, this is not an overnight success. This is, I would really like to do this and try to make this happen. And Honestly, because I wanted these images in the culture. And so I do it easily because I really, probably at this point, I mean, I live alone. I'm divorced twice. I got too many dogs. I, to a certain extent, I live in a little bit in a fantasy. I, I understand these characters in my head. And so I don't really think like, well, now Mary will have a life event. It's sort of like it really is step by step. There's a wonderful quote by E.L. Doctorow, which I'm going to mangle. But the idea is something like you don't have to know the whole journey. You can get there by your headlights. And that's how this series has been. I have just bit by bit said, well, they take this little step and this little step. And then as soon as Mary made partner, I was like, now this is interesting. So there's also, you're dealing with so many issues at once, but they're not issues per se because it's not a textbook and then people won't read it. But for example, you want to deal with power among friends. You want to deal with how do you run a law firm or a business? You want to deal with the fact that, gee, what happens to, um, you know, ethical rules of conflict of interest and things like that when there is so much conglomeration and, you know, where businesses combine and there's no more antitrust, any laws. So people, everybody buys everybody out. And what does that do to the practice of law? And what is it like when you're on the other hand, Simon, who loses his job because, frankly, his daughter's health care costs are costing the company money. And so you're not writing about that, at least in my view, in a dry way. You're always sort of showing people think of law as dry. I never felt that. I loved being a lawyer. I love reading about lawyers I, because I think the underlying issue is about justice and how you live your lives. I mean, law is a code of conduct that makes us all happier. That's why I always sort of taught myself the other day that no justice, no peace is a wonderful slogan. If there is not justice, there is not peace. 
And I actually taught a course called Fiction and Justice which at University of Penn Law School for three years, which I taught to kill a mockingbird, the, probably the best example of, you know, that there's so many things going on that, for example, law is different depending on who you are, depending on your race, depending on your economic status, depending on your gender, depending on your disabilities, you know, and also that that whole notion of the empathy that is so central to that book, you know, when... Atticus sits down with Scout and says, you know, you got to walk a mile in somebody's shoes. If people are more empathic, which I'm not sure is a word, but let's pretend it is, then there is peace. If people are more mindful of the rights and trials of other people, they will treat them better. They will abide by laws. There will be more conduct and better conduct in society, and there will be peace. It's really so remarkable and wonderful, and that's, what I, that's why I think these books, all of them, those nominated and those not, are so important, and I think people love it. I think that's why the books sell well. They want to work out these issues and learn about these issues and think about them. They're profound issues. They're really, you know, crime and punishment is the Russian novel, right? It's for, of all time, these are big, big questions. And you can wrap it up in a thriller package, but that isn't all that's going on in this book or any of them that were nominated and many that aren't. It's just all there is to it. So, you know, you have used To Kill a Mockingbird in class. I imagine you have read it multiple, multiple times. But do you remember your first experience reading it? When did you first read the book? You know what? I read it in, like, early high school. But I have to admit, I did not appreciate it. And that's what's so great about that book. Because when I read it, I thought, well, this is a story about a little girl. And then I happened to read it again because I was actually published by at some point by Harper Collins and I, they said, you know, I always loved the book, but I did not realize the depth and the, it's a long story, but basically I wanted to, I, they said, what book would you choose if you were going to get people listening to an audio book or reading a book? And I thought of To Kill a Mockingbird. And so I read it again and I posted all the, you know, holding it. And then I said, this, there is so much going on in this little book that I didn't get the first time. And that's why I decided to put it in the syllabus. Because though we read the modern legal thriller, we started with Merchant of Venice, actually, and Rigoletto, Images of Law and Justice and Culture, and then took them to Perry Maceman, then Anatomy of a Murder. And then, but I wanted to bring in To Kill a Mockingbird. And at first they would say, this is in a law school class, they said, oh, we read this in middle school. I said, you know what? So did I, and we were wrong. You're going to read this book again, and you're going to, I'm going to blow your minds right now. And they did, and they were mind-blown. I said, look how modern this is. Look at this, you know, to the extent that she was trying to say something, and as we know, because, of course, I've read all the biographies about her, you know, that maybe she was trying to say something about race and justice in the South. But she doesn't put it in the 60s. You know, she puts it back in time. And it's remarkable, at least in legal fiction, because the guy doesn't win in the end. Like, Atticus loses. Contrast that for a moment with Perry Mason, right? That it's a very modern view of justice, that law doesn't always lead to justice. And that is a concept that we know now from picking up any newspaper. So I think they really appreciated it in my class. I had 100 people in this lecture. I did it for three years. And when you ask them at the end, what was your favorite book? That came in first. And I was a very happy camper because I felt that I had got them to look at that book the way that not to go into someone's intent, especially as poor Harper Lee has passed. But I think I got them to look at, see that book with new eyes. 
And you've already addressed this kind of earlier in our conversation a little bit, but, you know, the guiding philosophy behind the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction and the thing that, you know, I kept in mind and, and you kept in mind when when you were looking at books years ago when, when you were first involved is that the purpose is to award it to a book that best illuminates the role of lawyers in society. And, you know, you, you spoke a little bit about this, but when you think about the role of lawyers in society, what does that mean to you? This year is interesting because unlike, you know, some past years, all three nominees for the 2018 Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction turned out coincidentally to be lawyers. So what do you think of when you think of the role of lawyers in society? I think that lawyers are the firewall. You know, when a, a few good men goes, you want us on that wall, you need us on... The idea that we are the protection for the individual and the protection for the individual's rights and civil liberties. And what I said before, the peace. We, I think of us, lawyers, and certainly my characters do this, as... You know, you say, well, you, they get justice. Well, what does that actually mean? What it means is that even if you are like Simon in the book, a guy who's fired, you can go into court against a mega company and have it, quote, have your day in court. And that that is something that I think people sometimes forget that lawyers do. You know, they don't – I think we, are, we have brought our reputation around – Partly because there's more images in culture and partly because there's more lawyers in culture who, and on, in real life, who are acquitting themselves so well. But I think we are the protection. I always felt that way a little bit as a defense lawyer. And every case I had where I thought, hmm, this person is, this company, even a company, I was a corporate, I remember corporate defense. I was like, ah, this company's wrongly accused of this. That's why I could get up in front of any jury and say it. Say that it was wrong because I felt it and I believed it. If they were rightly accused, I would tell them to settle. These characters are the same. I think lawyers do that. And I hope that the public, especially now more than ever, with all of the stuff going on in politics and in the world, are understanding that lawyers are about protecting peace and love, and especially in this culture, democracy. Because as you know, in America, you know, we don't have the English rule. You don't have to. There is no bar to entry. There should be no bar to entry in courts. And that's what I think the lawyer role is, is to protect. It's almost protect and serve justice and people. Well, if our listeners wanted to see more from you, whether it's it's social media or if they wanted to take a look at your book list, what would be a good place for them to go? Well, they could go to my website, which is scottalini.com. And I am on all the social media and it's all me. So there's no fantastic marketing machine. It's pictures of me with books and dogs and a pony. But I like that because I think, you know, going back to the Harper Lee Award and the book, the book being To Kill Mockingbird, that that notion that law should be accessible, you know, I, I feel that way about what I'm writing. That's why I write about these fairly complex and technical stuff. I mean, as you point out and expose, I mean, it's not – it wasn't 101. I mean, there's some esoteric stuff. You have to try to explain to people that there's an advisory committee just like you went through so helpfully. And I think that that's really important for people. So I try to make it as accessible as possible without dumbing it down because I think people are smart and they like to be educated. That's my job. 
Well, I think that Exposed by Lisa Scottolini did a great job about that. And if any of my listeners would like to nerd out further and kind of learn more about what we talked about, about the model rules, the ABA committee who compiles that, that's the ABA Standing Committee on Ethics and Professional Responsibility. And you would find links on, on their page to the model rules of professional conduct if you have more of an interest in that. And we'll link to that on our site as well. But Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I hope I didn't go on and on, but it's fascinating and you're an excellent questioner. So thank you so much. Thank you. I'm now joined by Cindy Tobesman, who writes under the name C.E. Tobesman. Cindy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Now, could you please introduce yourself to our listeners and talk a little bit about Proof, which is the second book in a new series? Well, I am a practicing lawyer. I'm an appellate attorney, which means I don't get out much. And it had been a lifelong dream for me to write a book since about fourth grade. And I came to the realization at some point that with a full-time job and kids and everything else, that there would never be a good time to write a book. And so I decided to write one. And you know, I went into it with a certain amount of arrogance because I thought, well, I'm an appellate attorney. I write these giant legal briefs and I have a work ethic and I'm, I'm used to editing. But I was very quickly humbled by the experience and realized that there was a lot to learn. And writing a 350, 400-page book is a lot different than writing a legal brief. But, you know, it was a great experience. And writing the book is one of the great things about being a writer is it keeps you curious. Proof is a book that is set largely in downtown L.A., sort of the fringes of society, down near the homeless encampments and the underside of bridges and places where people don't go. And part of the exploration for the book was learning about those populations and going to those neighborhoods and sometimes smelling those neighborhoods. But it was a very eye-opening experience, and I feel like an enriching one. And learning about even the main character that I've developed is a hacker-turned-lawyer. So she's somebody who knows quite a bit more about computers than I do. But it pushed me out of my comfort zone, and I met hackers, and I met people who work in cybersecurity. And I sat down and had these just fascinating conversations about what they do, and I learned a lot a bunch. So it's a great thing to do. And I know there's a lot of lawyers out there who dream of writing a book. There's never a good time to do it, but give it a shot and see what happens. So I'd love to talk more about Caroline Auden. And again, Proof, which is the book that's been nominated for the Harper Lee Prize, is the second book in the series. And I will say you really did put her through the ringer in the first book. And so... Part of proof is seeing how she's sort of rebuilt her life, rebuilt a career as a solo. And one of the things that I found really good and intriguing about this book was it rang true in that when you are a lawyer, there is the legal business that you encounter because it's part of your job. And then there's the legal business that you encounter because you're part of a society and a family. And Caroline has family issues and family troubles that lead her down this path. Can you talk a little bit about where she is at the beginning of Proof and the initial bits of the story that lead her down the path where you have all these later twists and turns that we're not going to spoil for our readers? Sure. One of the interesting things about writing a series, and especially writing a series where you're writing in the genre, writing a thriller is a lot of crazy things need to happen to the same person. And, you know, you look at some of these series that go on for 10, 20 books, and you think, gosh, how much, how many bad things can befall the same person? And what I really wanted to do in moving from the first book to the second book was to think 
realistically about where Caroline would be after the first book ended. And I, I don't want to spoil that book either, but she starts out this book in a very different place than she starts out the first book. She's starting a solo practice. She's just trying to get it off the ground. And as happens to many of us who are lawyers, she's asked to take care of the sorts of things that where your life intersects with the law. So in her case, her grandmother has passed away and she's been asked to go to the nursing home where her grandmother has lived the last few years of her life and to you know, deal with kind of closing her accounts there. And that's the sort of place where that's the job that falls to the lawyer. If there's a lawyer in the family, they assume you're the one who can probably read these incredibly thick, boring documents and figure out what, what should be done in this circumstance. And one of the things that I feel strongly about with any book, really, but especially a thriller, is that the plot should come into focus very quickly. I don't have a lot of tolerance for super dense paragraphs or long exposition. And so, you know, from really page one, something needs to start to happen. And in this instance, Caroline walks in the door. She's trying to sort out her grandmother's affairs. And she finds out that a large chunk of the estate, pretty much all of the estate, has been left to this entity that she's never heard of. And that's the sort of thing, if you're a family member, it would be disturbing enough. But as a lawyer, you have this other layer of concern because you know that's just not something that's supposed to happen, and you're going to start to look. And so in starting out a story, you want there to be some commonality. Like, that's an experience, you know, we all hopefully are, you know, going to have our loved ones live long lives, but many of us, and especially those of us who are lawyers, may end up sitting exactly where Caroline is. And if this was to befall them, you know, if this was to befall you, you'd be very, very concerned. And so hopefully from that moment forward, you go forward on this journey with her to figure out well, what the heck happened. And because it's a thriller, a lot of, you know, nothing is as it seems. And as she gets further down the path, it takes on a bunch of unprecedented twists and turns and leads her into some very dark places. Yes. As my editor and publisher, Molly McDonough, and I were talking about the various books that you know, we were winnowing down along with the University of Alabama folks. You know, you try and talk about, so what What are some of the themes that this book addresses? And with proof, we just, you know, came up with, you know, issue after issue. And, you know, you've got some elder law, you've got some government corruption, you have issues regarding veterans and homeless, and just on and on. And you still, as a reader, my experience was, you're carried through the narrative. How do you, as an attorney who, you know, you want to get the law right, but also you want to tell a good story and not bog down readers who, you know, maybe don't have law degrees or are mostly interested in the, you know, thriller part of the legal thriller. How do you balance that with getting the details at least close to correct, but not overwhelming your audience? It's a great, great question. I think it's one of the hardest balances to strike in a legal thriller because somebody who's reading a legal thriller, I make the assumption, is going to be a pretty bright person who has at least some curiosity about the law. They like the intersection of life and the legal system. So I, first of all, give the reader a lot of credit for having curiosity and even a lay understanding of the way the legal system works. But I need to provide enough of, kind of the legal background that they can understand what the boundaries are. I mean, a lot about, one of the things about the law 
is it's structured so that there's certain things you can and cannot do. And that's true in, in any, even like in a court hearing, there's certain behaviors. You know, you're not allowed to jump across the table and grab somebody by the throat. You're not even in a hearing, you're not even supposed to actually look at the other lawyer. You're supposed to keep your attention on the judge. And so I try to make those mores and those understanding kind of just part of the scene. So Caroline's aware of them. She knows what the rules are. And I will assume that the reader in kind of listening to her internal monologue and sort of with the way she's thinking about what's happening will understand that those are the rules. And so to the extent that I can get away with it, I want things to be implicit, not explicit, because nobody likes a giant block of text describing some statute or something. So, I mean, my goal is to put in as little as I can get away with, but as much as the reader needs and not a bit more. One of the other characteristics and elements of Caroline's story that I think that we can address without spoiling anything is, you know, she comes from a family background. It's a difficult family background. And one of the things that makes it difficult is that in her mother's family, her mother suffers from, you know, certain mental illnesses, as does her uncle. And so when she herself is thinking that she's perceiving something, maybe she's being followed, maybe she's, you know, maybe there are people plotting against her, but she keeps second guessing herself. She thinks, oh, no, maybe this is just my mother's mental illness manifesting in me. And you also look at, you know, kind of mental illness and the effects of that within the homeless population. What made you decide to kind of integrate that into the story? There's actually a couple of reasons. And one of them is that I feel like mental illness is one of those things that exists in the shadows, but it's so prevalent and it's so present in so many people's families, including my own. My mother struggled with mental illness. I have a grandfather who was an alcoholic. I feel like it's one of those things that families deal with and nobody ever really talks about to make a rather sad analogy, it's a little bit like if you have a miscarriage and then you find out that, wow, like half the people you know have had a miscarriage, but nobody's talking about it. And there's something about talking about it, frankly, and talking about it in the context of a thriller that I thought was a good place to do it because a thriller puts people under stress. The story is about a person who would very much prefer to have continued to live a regular life, who finds themselves in an extreme and dangerous situation. And that's the sort of situation where your self-doubts, your concerns are going to come out anyway. And if you have this backdrop of mental illness in the family, it's going to come out even more. And so it, it makes a very interesting character, I thought. And the way I conceive of Caroline is that, you know, the flip side of a lot of mental illness is that some of these folks are brilliant. And to the extent that somebody perceives the world, you know, they're incredibly sensitive or they're attuned to things in a way that other people may not be. It's like the main character... Carrie Matheson in Homeland is kind of borderline psychotic. I don't know if you've seen the show, but it's that very psychosis that also makes her a brilliant CIA agent because she sees things non-linearly. And I'm fascinated by that character, the character who has, you know, they, they succeed not so much despite their problems, but because of them, because of who they are. And for Caroline, this backdrop of mental illness and this intensity, this ability to integrate information very quickly this is all kind of part of that same thing that in her mom kind of went off the rails and in her uncle, who is somebody who's kind of trying to drink it away and trying to dull those perceptions. For Caroline, she's, she's making use of those same raw materials and hopefully is functioning at a higher level than other people might be able to precisely because of them, not despite them. So can we expect to see more of Caroline? Are you at work on book three? I'm in the process of outlining book three. 
And it's been the same process for all three books in that I go into it thinking I know what the story's about. And then the further I get into it, the more I realize that I had no idea what the story was about when I started and that the pacing is essential in a thriller. It needs to keep moving. My favorite fan mail that I get are emails from readers who say, you destroyed my weekend. I couldn't put the book down. I didn't sleep at all. I love that. Like, that's what I'm going for. I want to write that book that you can't put down. And it takes a lot of work to make that look effortless. So did you know that your book had been submitted for the Harper Lee Prize? (laughs) No, I actually had no idea. It came as a total surprise. Do you remember the first time you read To Kill a Mockingbird? I do. I remember I read it in grade school. It's maybe the only book I was ever assigned in school that I loved. You know, frequently you get books and you read them and it's, you know, it's Rudyard Kipling and you kind of understand why maybe some other generation had an easier time grasping it. Maybe there's something to it and some merit. The thing about To Kill a Mockingbird is that it's so character driven. I mean, the things that happen are horrific, but it's told through the eyes of a kid and you want to see what happens next. You just kind of keep turning the page and there's a slow dawning that this world that Atticus lives in is an unfair world and that the cards are stacked against certain members of the society and they're stacked for other members of the society. And Scout is looking at it and she's our stand in. I mean, we're looking at the story going, oh, my gosh. And it's an eye opening experience for a grade school kid like I was at the time, that such things could have occurred. And the plausibility of it is what made it all the more urgent, that you could imagine this actually happening. And then I'm asking all of our nominees this question. You know, the goal of the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction is to give the award to a book that best illuminates the role of lawyers in society. And so I just wanted to ask you, when you think about the role of lawyers in society, actually all three of our nominees this year are themselves lawyers. When you think about the role of lawyers in society, what would you define that as or describe that as? That's an interesting question because I think I would have answered it differently a year and a half ago. I think that in the last year, year and a half, we've learned or I've learned that lawyers can be first responders. Lawyers can be the people who when somebody's trying to take a family apart and deport somebody or put somebody in detention at an airport, they're the person that gets called and can get in their car and race down there and say, no, this person has rights. And to see that the rule of law, that there's a you know, mechanism out there for trying to right wrongs, and it's a toolbox that any lawyer has, and increasingly, you see in the news, people are using that toolbox to try to help people who are in desperate situations. And so I keep kind of reflecting on this idea of lawyers as first responders. And I think it comes up, you know, when you're in a community, like if you're looking at, you know, one of the reasons I wrote Proof is you look at like the homeless population and they exist really under the radar and they create in some ways their own structures for kind of how to live. You know, barter is the way that transactions occur because if you're carrying money on you, you can get robbed. And so, you know, laws are sort of how we try to create order out of our lives and create fairness in societies so that people can live together. And so to the extent that the law is out there and can be used to rectify situations that are sometimes unfolding in real time, it's a very vital topic to me now. Well, thank you so much for joining us. If our readers and listeners are interested in hearing more from you, checking out Doubt, which is the first book in the series, or Proof, which is the book that's up for the award, where could they go? Well, it's, of course, available where any place books are sold. Amazon's always fair game, but I'm a big fan of independent bookstores, too. So 
I mean, really, as long as people are out there and reading, my son always tells me, my 13-year-old son says, nobody reads anymore. But then I point out that he's always reading something. I said, there will always be a portion of the world that will read because reading is like nothing else. You get inside the story and you get to hear what the characters are thinking. And it gives you insight into just humanity and life in a way that no other medium can. So I would say, you know, pick it up on Kindle, pick it up at the bookstore. And if it's not my book, pick up some other book. Just keep reading. And then something that I learned when I looked at your website, and what's the URL of the website? CETobisman.com. Okay. But I learned that you also have written a graphic novel. Could you just talk just a little bit about that? Because I find that very fascinating. Oh, sure. So the series is called Inside the Loop. And it's a series that takes place in sort of a dystopian future where there's two cities that live close to each other. And one is this kind of socialist city and this other sort of Wild West capitalism city. And they have this uneasy existence. You know, there's no alliance about it. They just sort of have these parallel lives. And the protagonist is a police investigator who is in one city and needs her investigation and a bunch of personal issues carry her into the other city. And as she goes along, she realizes that there are tensions boiling beneath the surface that could erupt into war. And so the character in that case, and maybe I have an attraction to to characters that are slightly broken, has dealt with a life-threatening illness. And so part of the reason that she goes from this sort of socialist world where she is, where they have medical care that's okay but not great – into the capitalist super, you know, wild west world is that if you have enough money, you can buy the best medical care. And so the thing that she has can only be cured with this top line medical care. And so she's willing to take this risk. And also because her her case that, that she's following seems to lead that way. So all arrows are pointing that direction. And I mean, it was a lot of fun to do a graphic novel because it forces you into a certain economy of language. You know, you're telling the story primarily visually. And what that means is that, you know, you're letting the story really just come across with as as little description as you can verbally. You know, you want just the dialogue. So it's a little bit like, like writing a movie script. So in a lot of ways, writing the graphic novel informed my writing of the thriller because I like a sparse, I don't like, as I said, a, you know, big dense paragraphs. I want dialogue. I want punch. I want zing. I want things that kind of convey action quickly. And so writing it was just a total blast. So that does sound like an awesome project, but I have to ask, you know, in addition to being the appellate lawyer, writing these legal thrillers, then also graphic novels, how did that opportunity present itself? What brought that to your attention and made you get involved? Well, it's a great question because it really shows the power of serendipity. Um, I had been working on a script with a friend and somebody got their hands on it at a production company And they passed it to a woman who had launched a company called Emmett Comics. And the purpose of Emmett Comics was to find female writers and help them develop comic book stories, graphic novels directed at women. And what Emmett had done is they had figured out that half of comic book readers are actually women. And yet most comic books are neither written by women nor really have even female protagonists, many of them. That said, I mean, the comic book world is leaps and bounds ahead of movies and TV as far as kind of pushing the envelope and really amazing creative content. But I have always been interested in kind of books with pictures. But the idea of writing a comic book, I had never really thought of it before. And so I started looking into Emmett and I started looking at who the other kind of creators were who were working in it. And it was this exciting, vibrant world of people. And it's been such an amazing experience to work with Emmett and with uh, Maytel 
who's the Gilboa, who's the president of the company, and the other women who've been working creating these comics. And it's one of those things where it would never have occurred to me if it hadn't kind of fallen into my lap. And now I just I'm so thrilled that I got the chance to do it. And then final question: What do your law firm colleagues think of your books? Have you gotten them together for a book club? Are they supportive? <laughs> my first concern was that my partners would think, well, why, you know, why aren't you working more hours? Why are you spending time writing a thriller? But they've actually been incredibly supportive. I just got a, a, I've been working on a brief and I just got some comments back from one of my partners on an introduction. And he said, you know, this introduction's a little flat. How would Caroline Auden write this introduction? <laughs> <laughs> so they've been terrific. Well, Cindy, thank you again for joining us. I'm joined now by Scott Tarot, author of the book Testimony. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm honored and pleased to be included in this group. So very much flattered. So my first question is, could you tell our listeners just a little bit brief overview of what testimony is about? And just to remind everyone, we're not doing spoilers. We hope that you go out and read all three of these books. But we want to give you sort of a taste of what there is to read in these books. Well, Testimony is about a former American prosecutor, a man named Bill Tenboom, whose uh, life sort of goes up for grabs as uh, he approaches the age of 50. And so he accepts an invitation to go to The Hague to become a prosecutor at the International Criminal Court in the Netherlands, where he is assigned to investigate the disappearance of 400 Roma refugees from a camp surrounded by American bases near the end of the Bosnian peacekeeping mission. And, you know, many of our listeners may be a little bit confused about the Balkan conflicts, which you should be. They're very, very complicated. But at the time period you're talking about, so this is the event that he's looking into happened in 2004. Can you kind of ground people in what was happening in 2004? Well, by 2004, NATO, which was, this is really the only combat role NATO's ever had, NATO peace enforcement and peacekeeping troops had been in the Balkans for about nine years. The Balkan Wars had ended in 1995 with American military participation. So in 2004, when the incident was supposed to have occurred, the Americans were already departing largely so that we could direct our forces toward the war in Iraq. I do have to ask because, you know, you have written, I believe it's 10 fiction books, and they're part of this Kindle County kind of series. So, you know, you're going from a setting of Kindle County, Illinois, to all of a sudden you are in The Hague, you're dealing with, you know, the Bosnian conflict. What made you decide to so radically change the setting of one of your novels? Well, first of all, I'd done this once before. I wrote a novel called Ordinary Heroes, which was set principally in Europe during World War II. So it wasn't completely unknown for me to do this. And I always make sure that there is a continuing connection to Kendall County. So Bill Tenboom, the protagonist in Testimony, is supposed to have been the U.S. attorney in Kendall County. And he does, in fact, travel back home more than once during the course of the novel. But with all that said, it's obviously different from most of my other novels. And, you know, it was just something that I wanted to do. I'd been in The Hague in the year 2000. 
And I found myself at the American ambassador's house in the midst of a crowd of young American lawyers who were working in the many criminal tribunals in The Hague. And they all kept saying, you know, you've got to write a book about this place. And uh, they're very insistent. And usually when people tell me that they have a great idea for a novel, there's just this amazing case that I have to write about. They're usually talking about their divorce. But this sounded a lot more promising. And I always kept the idea in mind. And when I finished the novel before this book called Identical, I decided I'm, I'm ready to do the ICC, the International Criminal Court. And it gave me a chance to learn about the International Criminal Court, international criminal justice, the Roma people, and more inadvertently, the Bosnian conflict, which was horrifying and and terrible to learn about in more detail. Now, I will say that there was a certain personal resonance with this book for me because I spent part of 2003 in the Czech Republic, reporting on and editing stories about the Bosnian conflict. So around this time, I was actually actively focused on on this area. And, you know, especially when we're talking about Harper Lee and her writing, as Americans, there are certain forms of prejudice that we understand, that we, we know the historical background for. But, you know, you're bringing to light in this book prejudices that I don't know how many Americans are aware of. And one of those is towards the Roma, the Roma people. And also, you know, what the prejudices within within Bosnia and Herzegovina. So how did you tackle that as an American looking at these issues? Well, I had the advantage, of course, of the fact that my main character, Ten Boom, is, a, is an American. So, you know, I could sort of learn it and see it through his eyes. As far as Bosnia is concerned, I was shocked by the savagery of that war and how little I had been aware of it while it was occurring in the mid-1990s. The Roma, on the other hand, I'd been fascinated with most of my adult life and had always vowed to learn more about them. I think most people who are tourists in Europe see the Roma either you know, selling flowers in restaurants or the you know, sometimes the thuggy-looking gangs of kids who are around railroad stations. But my attitude always was, I really don't get these people. They do things that would seem to make them unwelcome, and yet they persist in that set of values. And in some ways, they are, you know, unique among minority groups. And, you know, they were absolutely a fascinating study. And uh, I really enjoyed that part of the research I did to write testimony. And again, I don't want to get into too many spoilers. So I will just ask more about the research angle of this. Now, one of the characters in this book, Laza Kajevic, he ends up going before the International Criminal Court. Could you kind of talk about how you did that research, how you chose the characteristics he would have, and what, if any, historical figures you were pulling from for his story? Well, the character I call Laza Kajevic, it's kind of an open secret that he bears a strong resemblance to the Bosnian Serb leader, Radovan Karadzic, in a highly fictionalized way. But Karadzic had the same ability as uh, Kajevic in my novel, which is to say that he he sort of made his own sense of outrage, a proxy for an entire nation's 
and had been a charismatic leader and had really persuaded Bosnian Serbs to behave in ways that I think many of them now regret. So, you know, but there was something about the opportunity that Kajovic presented as a character to put myself in the imaginary setting of having to confront one of these monsters of history, somebody who'd done, certainly allegedly had done really horrible things, and to hear how he rationalized his behavior. And somebody is who's been a criminal defense lawyer since 1987, I knew, I knew he would rationalize his behavior. Criminal defendants always do. But it was a very interesting, imaginative task. And I was really happy with the confrontation that emerges in the novel between the ICC personnel and Kajewicz. And then did you travel to The Hague? Did you travel to Bosnia? What kind of on-the-ground research were you able to do? I did travel to both places. I ended up in um, the Netherlands three separate times. And, you know, I've always loved the Netherlands. I arrived there first when I was 18 years old. And uh, The Hague is a really charming city. Ironically, I didn't have to go to The Hague to see the proceedings of the ICC because, you know, they're broadcast, they're streamed over the Internet. So I could literally watch them as I sat in my bathrobe in Evanston, Illinois. And that was not hard. And it's not hard for a trial lawyer to sort of absorb what's going on, even if the procedures are slightly different. But getting a feel for the milieu of the court required, of course, the effort of going there. And I spent time around the court talking to prosecutors, you know, a couple of the judges, some of the defense lawyers. And I thought it was a fascinating place. And the ICC has got a complicated history with our country because the United States was among the chief movers for the Rome Treaty, which created the ICC. And then because of a change of administrations, we basically backed out of it, which I will say was a mistake. And um, I always believe whoever it was, Daryl Zanuck or Sam Goldwyn, somebody one of these producers told one of his writers, if you want to send a message, use Western Union. And testimony is not designed to send messages about the ICC, you know, about whether it was good or bad that the Americans pulled out of the ICC. It simply takes it as a fact and uses it as a basis for some of the drama in the book. So let's transition now to talking about the Harper Lee Prize. First of all, did you know that your publishers had submitted your book for consideration? I did not. I did not. I had no idea, to tell you the truth. So I don't know who at Grand Central I should be thanking, but I will explore that and we'll definitely do it. And then this is a question I'm asking all of the nominees. Do you remember the first time you read To Kill a Mockingbird? And what's your relationship been like to the book? Well, I read To Kill a Mockingbird, I think I was 13 years old. And like most readers of To Kill a Mockingbird, I was incredibly swept up in the novel and, you know, by Scout's observations of her father and sibling and, you know, the town in which she lives and the trial that takes place. So, you know, it it remains a first-rate novel, you know, and whenever people talk to me about my role as the supposed uh, parent of a legal thriller, I always point out that 
there were books like To Kill a Mockingbird and Anatomy of a Murder that really sort of galvanized the nation long before Presumed Innocent. I did go back and reread To Kill a Mockingbird a few years ago. I just wanted to see what my judgment of it would be. You know, it's got to be 50 years later. And I enjoyed it the second time through as well. It's a terrific novel. And then finally, what are you working on now? Do you have anything that you are ready to share with us about maybe whether it's a nonfiction or fiction book? Yeah, I'm hard at work on a novel called The Last Trial. And this is about the uh, final courtroom adventure of Sandy Stern, who was Rusty Savage's defense lawyer in Presumed Innocent. He's 84 years old now and has been called upon to defend an old friend who, like him, is an Argentine emigre and who has become in the United States a Nobel Prize winner in medicine and is now in his late age, that is to say, the friend charged with fraud and securities, law violations, and murder in connection with the application for a uh, cancer drug. And then I said that was the final question, but I've actually changed my mind because, you know, the theme for the Harper Lee Prize is that a book illuminate the role of lawyers in society. You yourself are a lawyer, and I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts about the role of lawyers in society, particularly in the present day? Well, I think about this a lot because, you know, by now this has been the subject of a lifetime, both in terms of the work that I've done as a lawyer and even more so the writing that I've done. And I was working on a passage this morning in which Sandy Stern is basically explaining why he has loved being a lawyer. And he sees the law as the bulwark against social chaos and tyranny and about maintaining order in our social relations. And, you know, Stern, like me, thinks of it as one of, uh, you know, humankind's great achievements. It's not the only worthwhile thing a human being can do. There are many other things, but the rule of law, as Stern thinks, he's supposed to be an emigre from Argentina, as I mentioned. And at the time that the Stern family first arrived in Argentina in 1928, Argentina was the eighth richest nation in the world. And so Stern thinks, those who regard the rule of law as merely a decorative slogan for bourgeois life should consider the cases of nations like Argentina and Brazil, which are rich in resources but have not been able to save themselves from repeated uh, economic and governmental catastrophes because, frankly, they have not maintained their legal traditions. So I think of the law as being really fundamental to having citizens in a nation be able to fully explore their opportunities and achieve what they should. Well, Scott, thank you so much for speaking with us. My guests have been Lisa Scottolini, Cindy Tobisman, and Scott Tarot. Thank you all for joining us for this special episode of the Modern Law Library. Please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.